zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Omen 3, The Final Conflict, released March 20th, 1981. It was written by Andrew Birkin, based on characters by David Seltzer, directed by Graham Baker, and released by 20th Century Fox. This is our 200th episode, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! Woo -woo. Very exciting. All right, that's out of the way. (laughs) <laughs> i've always assumed the first omen was based on a book but apparently not a man named bob munger first pitched the story to harvey bernhard a producer in 1973 and bernhard hired screenwriter david seltzer to adapt the pitch into a screenplay technically the film was preceded by a book but only because screenwriter david seltzer was hired to write a novelization for the studio to release two months in advance of the film as a marketing technique i guess they do that hmm. probably works better for sequels because there's a built-in market you're gonna make money on the book yeah i I always remember like uh was it sometimes like movies would have like posters that read the ballantine book but that was Mm. always after the movie came out yeah the story of the first film involves the child of the u.s ambassador to britain it's a changeling situation the ambassador's wife has the child at a foreign hospital and they tell the husband that the child didn't survive so he agrees to bring home another child born the same night whose mother died and as he grows up the child damien is surrounded by bizarre suicides and accidental deaths eventually the father learns of his adopted son's origins and tries to destroy the child himself director richard donner wanted the child's satanic affiliation to be ambiguous but the producers sided with the screenwriter munger was not credited on screen for providing the first film's story but he did get a story by credit on the second film in the second film Damien is sent to live with his aunt and uncle, where he's enrolled in a military academy and groomed to take on an executive role at his uncle's company, while a secret society hunts the child down to kill him using one of seven daggers of Megiddo. I have a question about the first film. Yes. Does it take place in present day to when it was made, or is it in the past? We'll discuss that. Okay. It's a, it's a moving timeline. The third film started with the working title Omen 3, and then The Final Conflict Omen 3, and eventually just The Final Conflict, which seems like a mistake to potentially miss out on Omen's existing audience. For sure. Why would you not include the fact that it was an Omen? And and yeah. now, I mean, when you look it up, it always says the Omen right. colon well, the Final Conflict. Well, it depends, actually, because Wikipedia has it one way and IMDb has it a different way. Oh, okay. Um, but Omen 2 was pretty bad, so I wonder if it wasn't just to get the taste out of people's mouths. Maybe, but, like, I just, you don't have an audience anymore. Right, like, now what's it's the point just of a making a sequel? Yeah. yeah. In some foreign markets, it was released as Barbara's Baby to imply some connection to Rosemary's Baby. Barbara is in the story. She's the <laughs> the wife of uh, was the assistant. We're going to call it Son of Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Is that from something? It's from Seinfeld. Oh. It's one of Kramer's Kramer's pitches for the killer that's killing knocking people's heads off along with the lopper. 
It's like both good names. Again, Munger did not get a story credit. In the original draft of the third film, Damien was much older, and Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando, and Gene Hackman were all considered for the role. Lead actor Sam Neill was recommended for the part by actor James Mason, who paid for Sam Neill's flight to London to audition. Based on Damien's age in the first two films, he could not have been as old as Sam Neill is in this film. Yeah, that was that was my problem with yeah. the timeline because I was like, I it was late seventies that the first Omen yeah it, came mid out, right? mid seventies mid seventies in the first film Damien's born in nineteen seventy one and he's five in seventy six when the film came out. In the second film, he was born in sixty six, and he's twelve in nineteen seventy eight. In the final conflict, he was born in nineteen fifty. And he's 31 in 1981, meaning somehow in the five years from the first film to the third one, Damien aged 26 years. Yeah. So okay. It's a it's a moving timeline, and obviously it doesn't really no. matter. It's just I I was just questioning like because I hadn't seen the first two, I wasn't sure if maybe it was a you know it was set in the past. In order for him to be Sam Neill's age, I think it would have to be like 2002 for him to be that old. If the timeline were going to line up and the kid was born in 71, he wouldn't be 31 until 2002. Yeah. We open on a shot of a huge drill. A title tells us we're in Chicago, Illinois, but we're not. This was shot entirely in the UK. I'm assuming that the second film took place in Chicago? Uh, The second film ends in Chicago, yes. Uh, But here, a massive underground drill is digging under the wreckage of the Thorne Museum, which was destroyed in a fire at the end of the previous film. A man working the site notices several daggers rolling down the conveyor belt taking rocks out of the hole, and he pockets them. We see a man buy them at a pawn shop, and eventually they're sold at auction to the highest bidder. The new owner researches the daggers late into the night and sells them privately to a man with a scraggly black beard. I was slightly confused by this because I only saw the man take a single dagger Mm -hmm. off of the conveyor belt and hide it, and so... For a good like third of this movie or more, I thought that, okay, so there's seven daggers in this collection. This eighth dagger that this man found is going to come into play at oh, some no. point. <laughs> like, I thought it, I didn't realize it was part of that collection. Well, he <laughs> picks up more than one in that shot even, but they're wrapped in concrete and, mm-hmm. and rocks. So it kind of looks oh. like he's just picking rocks off of the okay. tray. Okay, I only realized he picked up one. And so yeah. I figured like this was going to be like- A the, secret knife that The secret knife that he didn't account for and it was going to yeah. come into play and kill him, you know, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> We cut to Subiaco, Italy, where the bearded man knocks on the door of a church and he presents the daggers to a priest who kisses them overjoyed. We cut to stock footage of Antarctica and a voice describes the mass extinctions of the Ice Age. The voice compares the current global political upheaval to that Ice Age. The economic crisis of the past decade has brought inflation, famine, and chaos to every corner of the globe. Some label it the Great Recession. Others are calling it Armageddon. That final upheaval of the world foretold by the prophets of old. At the end, we realize this is a commercial for Thorn Industries, a company who intends to position themselves as the last hope for humanity. The lights come on and we realize we're in a screening room, and Damien Thorne, the owner of the company, lays out his criticisms of the commercial. It reminded me a lot of Frank Cross's version of the IBC commercial at yeah. the start of Scrooged. Yes. Absolute brain. Drug addiction. International terrorism. Freeway killers. Down 
more than ever. It's it is important to remember the true meaning of Christmas. Don't miss Charles Dickens' immortal classic, Scrooge. Your life might just depend on it. <laughs> Damien and his right-hand man, Harvey Dean, move back to Damien's office, where they make plans for the upcoming week. Dean suggests that Damien attend some upcoming relief work as a PR opportunity for the company, and Damien says that he has to stay in town because the president is going to call him to appoint him to ambassador of Great Britain. Dean doesn't understand how Damien knows this, and Damien starts reading apocalyptic passages from a Bible. The yeah, at this point I was like, does he know who Damien yeah, is? Yeah, I feel like at first I was like, oh, he just seems crazy unless this guy already has some mm-hmm. conversation about this or... I mean, I don't want to spoil things, but I think we come to learn that Harvey is fully aware yeah. of, of who Damien is. I think it's is. clear by the, by this scene, even. So, why does he seem confused that he knows this? I don't, Yeah, that's that's a better question. I think it's just to set up the audience to wonder why he knows it and to yeah. force him to answer. Yeah. The passage, after Damien translates it for Dean and the audience, says that he will spend seven years working at Thorn, and then he will go to England, where he will face off against Christ, the second coming... According to the Bible, though, Christ will defeat him, but he claims to have some control over this outcome. The second coming. Only it won't be the beast that is destroyed. It'll be the Nazarene. Damien, you said you were going to be offered the post of ambassador to Great Britain. What about our present ambassador? (laughs) I love the way they set this scene up, because we cut right to the present ambassador. Uh, first, we get Damien gives his, you know, his evil grin, and then we cut to the ambassador walking through the park on a rainy UK day, and as he moves along a path, we get these quick POV shots of someone creeping through the bushes right behind him. Whenever he turns around, though, there's nothing there, and he's getting suspicious. Out of nowhere, he's face-to-face with a big, angry Rottweiler. These dogs make appearances in the first and third films of the franchise, but they're notably absent from the second film, which seems to replace them all with crows. The ambassador's eyes glaze over, and he turns back toward the vehicle he came to the park in. A waiting chauffeur opens a door, but he walks right past it and out into traffic. The ambassador continues walking all the way to his office building, where he slams his office door in his secretary's face as she follows him with an urgent phone message. And of course, like this entire time, you're like, okay, he's going to get hit by a car. Oh, yep. Okay, he's going to get eaten by a dog. Yeah. Okay. Oh, he's going to get smashed in you an know, elevator. Like, like you're just waiting for this thing that, to, to happen, and it, it it takes so much longer to unwind than I ever expected. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then something happens here. He goes into the bathroom to, like, wash his face. Yeah, and, and he notices his, something in his reflection. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I kept watching. I was like, what is he seeing? Because the music cues come way up. Yeah. And and I was like, I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to be seeing. Is that not his reflection? Because it almost looks like the person in the foreground of the mirror might not be him no it's definitely his reflection i think he's just noticing something in himself okay that that i don't see but there's something there we needed like some kind of like creature like holding him or 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 something (laughs) i feel like that was a thing that they meant to do in post and they just forgot they ran out of money yeah (laughs) Yeah, whoops (laughs) he phones his staff to order a press conference at three o'clock in his office and he returns to his desk where he jerry rigs a rube goldberg machine (laughs) yeah connecting the trigger of a gun pointed at his face to the handle of his office door. I mean, you don't, I don't think you realize that, though, as he's assembling this. 
Well, I I definitely think it's a trap of some sort. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like, but everything is done with rather close inserts sure, here. Yes. So what mm-hmm. he does is he goes over and he opens the typewriter and he pulls out the, the ribbon. Ta- the, yeah, the, mm-hmm. the the tape in the in the in the typewriter, and he walks over to the door and he's tying this tape onto the door, and you're just like, what the hell is he doing? Um, you know, and then then it. it it comes to like that he had asked for a press conference at exactly three o'clock. He's like, everybody needs to come to my office at three right. o'clock. And he even specifically invites them in at three. He tells his secretary to go ahead and open the door. Yeah. And when she does. Come in. But, but why, why not just kill yourself? Like why, why, why this elaborate mechanism uh, I think it's funnier the way he did it. I feel like that's what I would do. <laughs> you, you always go for the funniest <laughs> Always leave him laughing. What? Well, I feel like Rube Goldberg isn't a common enough suicide. I feel like I wish people mm. did that more. Because I feel like I have not, I, I, should, I should preface, that I have not seen the other two Omen movies. Um, I, all I know is that someone jumps off a building yep. in one. So it's just like. It's all for you, Damien. Yeah, that's all I ever know from the, from the original. And. So I just assumed that that this guy was going to kill himself, but not in this really elaborate manner yeah. that, that won't play. No one else will do this. This won't happen. It's cinematic, Richard. <laughs> would you rather he just shoots himself in the washroom and that's the end of it? Or would you rather have his secretary pull the trigger on accident? <laughs> yeah. Come no. on. It's also kind of great. Yeah. I mean, the shot of his head actually exploding is really excellent. Yeah. yeah. And we- you also see his blood splattered all across the the ambassador seal on the wall yeah and then under the desk his leg is like kicking frantically oh, yeah <laughs> um we got a lot of head exploding this uh this this season of yeah vintage video i couldn't remember great. the podcast name for a minute that's <laughs> <laughs> all right still um, getting used to it 200 episodes in. <laughs> uh, i wanted to to mention though that the the typewriter was an ibm selectric Ooh. um which is a really cool typewriter because the the all the heads are on a sphere right like and, the hard and, copy ball. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it like it like and it, and what was cool <laughs> was that you could change the sphere out for different fonts. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's really neat. I can't believe you remember hard copy. <laughs> Everybody remembers hard copy, right? I'm not old. Are you another one of them hard copy guys? <laughs> <laughs> we get an establishing shot of the White House, which is actually footage borrowed from Superman 2 with the effects removed. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Is courtesy of uh, Richard Donner. <laughs> Richard Donner, the EP of this film, who directed the the first installment. I, I have to say, in the opening credits, when it said so and so as the president, I was like, I am one hundred percent on board. The devil and the president. <laughs> the president. We'll see this shot with the effects back in it later when we get to Superman two. We cut to the Oval Office where the president is wrapping up a phone call before speaking with Damien. There appears to be some dispute between Egypt and Israel. And Damien has inside information because of his company's relief programs in the region. It sounds like he's already been offered the position of ambassador to the UK, but he's here to turn it down because he's not interested in relinquishing control of Thorn Industries. The president tells him they can find a workaround so that he doesn't have to divest his interests in the company. Hell no, we can take care of that, boy. It is against the law. Then we'll just have to bend it. It turns out that's not the end of Damien's list of demands. There are two other conditions. What? He also wants to limit the appointment to two years so that he can run for the Senate in 1984. The last request is Presidency of the United Nations Youth Council, 
which the president has already promised elsewhere. Damien reiterates that this is a deal breaker, and the president phones his chief of staff to make the necessary changes. So at this point, I guess he doesn't know how eminent the second coming is. If he's intending to run for pre- for right. senator it, well, in two years. And I feel like the youth council thing, like it doesn't really come into play. In, I mean, in so much as he wants to influence the youth and, right. and yeah. this is a way to do it, great. But, you know, it seems like he's got long-term plans that well, he wouldn't be making if you knew the second coming was any day now. <laughs> well, maybe the second coming doesn't end everything. Maybe, maybe the society goes on and he still needs to make these long-term plans oh. moving forward. Okay. We cut to the stars at night above an observatory where a pair of scientists are mapping out some corner of the sky. They've discovered something puzzling. Three stars in the sky seem to be slowly merging. Using star maps dating back to 1928, which I'm impressed that they have them all at the same scale, like printed uh, out in uh, the same quality. Yeah, and the same quadrant of right. or, uh, quadrant. I mean, the same Im- portion of the sky had yeah. been photographed. Uh, But they plug all the numbers into a simulator to figure out when these stars will collide or align, as the case may be. And we see a readout on a typewriter that says the DiCarlo Trinity alignment is estimated to occur at 2.26 a.m. general mean time on March 24th. We cut back to the monastery in the middle of nowhere, where seven monks are praying over seven daggers. In contrast with the previous installments of the series, everyone seems aware, at least in the religious world, of who Damien is and what he represents. These men are all praying for the second coming and blessing the sacred knives of Megiddo. Each of the seven monks is given a dagger with which they are to stab the Antichrist. They have until the morning of March 24th, when the stars collide, to defeat the Antichrist and protect the second coming of Jesus Christ. At a dinner party, Kate Reynolds, a British talk show host, is fascinated by the youthful appearance of the newest American ambassador to her country. Damien's secretary, Dean, confirms for her that Damien is the youngest ever appointed. He also introduces Kate to his wife, Barbara, who appears to be seven or eight months pregnant. Dean offers to introduce Kate to the ambassador. Sam Neill and Lisa Harrow, the actors playing these characters, met on set and were married shortly after the production wrapped, eventually separating in 1989. In the film, Kate is interested in having Damien on her show for an interview. Damien is called away for diplomatic reasons, but makes an appointment to meet with Kate on Sunday. She says that she'll be with her son Peter on Sunday, and Damien says, oh, bring him along. On their date-slash-meeting thing, Damien surprises her son with a remote-controlled boat as a gift. Kate and Damien walk past a row of protesters. The first and second speakers seem to have some gripe with the government, but the third one is speaking of Christ's impending second coming, and for some reason Damien can tell this isn't just another loony on the street, that he has a source for his information. The man speaks of the converging stars and the birth of the Nazarene. Damien looks very troubled by the man's proselytizing, and we suddenly see one of the dagger monks moving through the crowd. We cut to a nighttime gathering of the dagger monks, and the one that we saw said he couldn't get close enough because of all the people around. He tells the other assassins that he was walking with Kate Reynolds, a celebrity talk show host. And, and see, and I, I, fi- I find that excuse to be BS. Yeah. It's like, isn't this pretty important? Yeah. It's just, just like, run up and stab the guy? Yeah, if you get caught, you get caught, but you stab him and you do it and it's done. Yeah, but I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> I don't want to go to jail for Christ. They decide that they must attack Damien when he's not moving. And since his residence is guarded when he sleeps, as is the embassy, they'll have to attack him when he's being interviewed on Kate's show. 
Backstage on the set of the show, Damien takes the brush away from the person doing his hair to brush it himself because he doesn't want her to notice the mark of the beast in his hair that we've seen in previous films. I didn't put two and two together because I hadn't seen the previous films and I didn't, and that, the fact that that's there isn't revealed in this film until much later. And I was like, why is he so upset about her brushing the hair? But also like, what is she going to do if she says, she's like, oh, there's sixes here. Anyway. You got a weird tattoo, buddy. (laughs) As Damien moves to set, we hear Kate reading his introduction. Kate compliments his accomplishments at such a young age, but Damien compares himself to Alexander the Great to show that he could be doing more than he is. Kate considers the comparison apt because his company, Thorn, intends to bring society to a new era, and he tells her that she's been seeing too many of his commercials. One of the dagger monks is sneaking around the catwalks above the stage... (laughs) Again, what is your plan here? Are you gonna you gonna dive down. <laughs> dive down with a dagger? Yeah, I also don't know how you could possibly get up here without drawing the attention of everyone, but somehow he's able to sneak up here. And it's uh, pretty um, rickety sounding, right? Yeah, it's the whole so thing's like, shaking. Why is everybody not looking up? Being like, who the fuck is up in the Raptors right now? We're recording. But he's even while he's up there, encountered by a member of the crew who says, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" And he just says, "Like, oh, this is stage eight, right?" And he's like, "No, this is stage four. And he's like. Great, thank you. <laughs> Go away. And he just stays up there. He doesn't c- climb well, down. That's, no, that, that oh, happens that the on hallway? the ground. Oh, okay. And then he kind of sneaks off. And I think because he was encountered by that guy is why he went up into the rafters because he couldn't keep hanging around here because the oh, okay. guy would see him again. That makes sense. Was his plan to maybe just dangle the dragger above him and just let it fall? <laughs> yeah, like the sort of Damocles. Damocles. <laughs> <laughs> just drop it right on the guy. He quietly makes his way through the rafters just above Damien on the stage when Dean finally notices him at the last second and just shouts out Damien, surprising the man, who falls from the catwalk through a sheet of plastic and his leg gets hooked on a rope. So then he swings through a stained glass partition and over some candles where he is quickly set aflame and then his flaming body swings back and forth through the set as people race to put him out. But by the time he stops swinging, he's already dead. That's like, just, it's so horrible. I yeah. mean, to be swinging and on fire is is pretty awful, but then to also be wrapped in a sheet of plastic yeah, while you're on fire. Yeah, you're being shrink-wrapped, essentially. Ugh. He's got to be so fresh in there. Oh my God. He's Laura Palmer fresh in there. <laughs> I haven't seen that show. Well, that's the opening of the show. They finding her body wrapped in plastic. So delicious. These are Twin Peaks references, folks. <laughs> Back at home, Damien informs Dean that what he interrupted on set was likely an assassination attempt. What? I found this on the studio floor. This is one of the seven knives of Megiddo, the only thing on earth that can kill me. Damien further explains what is established in the previous films, that a priest gave these daggers to his adoptive father, Gregory Peck, to kill him. Gregory Peck plays himself in the first Omen film. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a true story, the first one. (laughs) They changed it later on. Dean is worried that other people may know who he is and about the prophecy, since there are still six daggers out there. Someone delivers a message of a phone call for Dean from a local hospital, and Dean is suddenly reminded of something vaguely important that happened today. Oh, Barbara, I, she went into labor this afternoon. Uh, can I borrow your car? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a dad now. I forgot because of your fascinating knife story. The surviving six monks meet again to revise their plans. Their priority now is locating the second coming of Christ before Damien can destroy him. At home, Damien excuses his staff 
and closes himself in a large dark room and prays to his true father, Satan, to guide him to destroy the Nazarene. He circles a crucifix and speaks directly to it, his intended target. You know, it didn't occur to me until just now that the guy who comes in to say that the phone call came from the hospital is only coming in because Dean probably said, can you come in and say that the hospital oh. called and that <laughs> yeah. my wife went into labor today because to I need to make sure that it didn't happen on the 24th. Yeah, that's so funny. I feel like he's he told that guy to come in. That's why he doesn't sell the line of, oh, that's right. My wife had a baby today. I totally forgot about it. I am slightly bothered by the fact that Damien keeps calling the child that he must destroy the Nazarene. Why? Because the only reason Jesus was the Nazarene was because he was of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. He was born there. But this kid is being born in London. So shouldn't he be destroying the Londoner? The well, Londonine? he's the Nazarene <laughs> reincarnated, though, isn't he? I, I don't You, you, you I talk don't about know. the person from where they were born the first time. Not the second time. No. <laughs> what what is the what is Nazareth Nazareth in present day is it still Nazareth now it's called London what <laughs> <laughs> I changed it at home Damien excuses his staff and closes himself in a large dark room and prays to his true father Satan to guide him to destroy the Nazarene he circles a crucifix and speaks directly to his intended target Damien claims his father went through much worse torture than Jesus ever endured because he got sent to hell Jesus never went to hell in anger, Damien tightly grips the crown of thorns on the Jesus statue until his hands bleed and drip down Christ's face. Back at the observatory, scientists look at the sky again at the hour of convergence, and when the stars align, bright lights burst forward and fill the sky. Damien is awoken and sits up in bed dripping with sweat. Now, at, at this point, I didn't realize the first time we saw these astronomers that they're working for or with DiCarlo. Right. That That's why it's called the DiCarlo Trinity yeah, on the computer reader. But but it just seems so strange to have like men of science and men of faith. Um, yeah. And DiCarlo, together. by the way, is the name of the lead monk of right. these seven monks. Um, but DiCarlo has a nice thing that says that, that that thanks to the science of man, we know when this trinity is going to occur. Right. And I was like, that's that's kind of a neat little aspect, bringing in the, the, the that. That the, they're the, using it as a tool to, mm-hmm. to perfect their their antichrist killing right which it should be the other way the technology should be hindering right on the way to work the following day kate reynolds catches damien in the lobby to offer him an apology damien agrees to reattempt the interview but he'll host this time to control all the safety precautions in his office dean tells damien about the daggers being auctioned off but damien says it's too late the daggers have made their way to london with all the monks here for the birth of the nazarene and every day the child lives damien will lose strength Damien watches one of the dagger holders sitting in the park across the street. The man is still there hours later waiting for Damien to follow him. And Damien intends to. But what if he's got one of those daggers? I'll be wasting my time if he hasn't. Over the course of the next day, the man walks way out in the middle of nowhere toward an enormous rock formation. Damien follows, and the dagger man radios to his buddies as he approaches. We see Damien enter a small castle on the rocks, and he is quickly ambushed by two more daggermen. One throws a coat over his head to disorient him, and the two stab him over and over with their daggers until he is dead. When they lift the coat, though, they find the daggerman that led Damien here. Apparently, Damien's powers include the one we saw in Scanners earlier this year to change someone's outward appearance. They both saw Damien's face in place of this man's, and they're now down to five dagger monks. I mean, I don't think they changed his appearance. He changed their perception right well same thing yeah i mean i guess although he looked like damien to me 
I wasn't looking yeah. through their eyes. Okay. I'm I'm just saying I'm just saying because I feel like when the dog appears, he seems to be able to control people's minds and thoughts. So That's I feel true. like as opposed to making some sort of physical change in the world, he's changing the perception. Yes, no, I definitely think it's a psychic thing yeah. that he's doing. He's doing it in their brains. A massive lightning storm fills the sky and the two men run for cover. They are chased into an underground chamber by another barking Rottweiler, but as soon as they close themselves in, they realize they're trapped. Now there are three assassins at large. Well, what I thought was going to happen, too, was once once that grate covers them... It was going to start raining? Yeah, I thought it was going to yeah. start raining. I was like, oh, that's so great. Yeah, that would be good. But it doesn't happen. They just cut away. We're just supposed to assume these two starved to death, I guess. Yeah. The next day, Damien informs Dean of his new plan. To be sure that the Nazarene has been dispatched... They need to kill every child born between midnight and dawn on March 24th when the stars aligned. Dean reminds Damien that by an insane stroke of luck, his son was born 10 minutes before midnight on March 23rd, so no need to murder that one. (laughs) Damien informs Dean that he is in charge of killing all the babies. (laughs) Liquidate the Nazarene. Later, we see Damien heading out on a highly publicized fox hunt with many other hunters. Kate's son, Peter wants to know if he can get blooded today during the fox hunt. Someone asks what blooded means so that the screenwriter can explain it to the viewer. You know perfectly well what it means. If it's your first hunt and they catch a fox, they smear blood all over your cheeks. Satisfied? The horns are blown to begin the hunt and everyone races out into the woods. Two of the remaining dagger men are hiding in the woods. One of them snipes the fox everyone is hunting and then releases a new fox to split the hunting party in two groups. I'm not sure why this was necessary. I guess to lure Damien away with the fake fox? But I mean, wh- not- why Why not just kill the fox you brought? Why did you have to kill the fox that they were hunting? Yes. But either way, he kills one fox and replaces it. And so everybody follows the replacement fox. He drags the, the fox he killed behind a horse to lead Damien in a separate direction than everybody else went. So maybe Damien has some magical power to find this specific fox. And so everyone else is going to chase the replacement fox, but he's going to keep chasing the first fox. He somehow times it exactly right so that only Damien is following the dead fox, and the man leads him to a tall stone bridge. The two dagger men pull up on the opposite end of the bridge and stupidly start waving their weapons around far enough away for Damien to develop a plan. Damien is able to psychically manipulate the first dagger man's horse into jumping up on its hind legs and dumping the assassin over the side of the bridge. Vic Armstrong, the stuntman here, said in an interview with Guinness Records that this was the scariest stunt he ever did because he had to fall 100 feet backward off the bridge when he'd never done a fall from higher than 70 feet. I don't feel like that was necessary, though. I don't think so either. So, I mean... I also feel like if I was a dude on a rearing horse, I would have gotten off before the horse tipped me over the edge. I probably yeah. wouldn't be in the middle of a tall bridge on a horse in general. Yeah. Do you recall the last time we had a character psychically manipulate a horse? That's right. No. Earthbound. Uh. <laughs> Remember they tell the horses to please oh, yeah. shake the people off so that they can go away? The second dagger man stares down Damien from the opposite end of the bridge until Damien sicks his hunting dogs on the man, and he is torn limb from limb. Yeah, as, as soon as I saw Damien just standing there with all these dogs staring quietly at the other yeah. guy, I was like, oh man, you are done. Yep. And then there was one 
So we're now down to DiCarlo as far as dagger monks are concerned. Everyone else has been dispatched. When Damien returns to the house where the hunt started and everyone else had already come home, Peter complains to him that he didn't get blooded, and Damien offers to blood the boy with a bloodied rag he has from hunting the dagger man. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is human blood, but yeah. he wipes it on the kid's face. Well, after yeah, after the second guy is attacked by the dogs, he does bend down over the body with his mm -hmm. handkerchief. Right. So. Um, but what's what's extra creepy is that he, he wipes the blood on the kid's one cheek, but then the kid like takes his hand to to get the other cheek and right. damien seems like almost like impressed like it's oh like, this oh, kid's this really in yeah, yeah. Uh, this kid's into it can you blood me does it count that's with me <laughs> that night we see damien delivered by helicopter to the same rock formation only now it's completely crowded with hundreds of people maybe thousands i can't tell there's a lot of people <laughs> there's here. there's so many people uh but they all seem to be listening to him in a trance do you, do you hear, hear me, me? They know who he is, and he's telling them what they need to do. I now, I now command, command you to seek out and destroy the Nazarene child. Slay the Nazarene, and I shall reign forever. Fail, and I perish. Slay the Nazarene, and you. My, My disciples, disciples shall, shall truly inherit, inherit this, this earth. earth. Fail. Fail. And, and you, you will, will perish, perish without, without trace. trace. We cut to Dean's home where his wife is about to go shopping with a friend and she's bringing the baby. Her friend has a baby and she has a baby and they're leaving to go shopping together. After she leaves, Dean makes a phone call to someone and gives them an address near a park. He's clearly giving someone directions to a baby that needs murdering. <laughs> but the person on the phone is understandably reluctant and wants to know how they're supposed to pull this off anyway. Like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Just run up and kill someone's baby? That doesn't make any sense. Listen, Peterson, I don't give a shit how you feel about this. Just do the job. Dean gives the man a couple more addresses and the names of more babies. Next comes the most disturbing montage in recent memory. Yeah. We cut all over town as people's babies are being murdered by Damien's disciples. The other mother, who was just shopping with Dean's wife Barbara, separates from her and walks her baby in a stroller down the street until a ball is suddenly thrown over a brick wall and hits her in the head. Are we to understand that this is planned? That this was an orchestrated kill? Well, there were... I think so, because in the group of disciples that you know he was speaking with... There was also a bunch of young children right. yeah. amongst them. And I think that the idea here is that the young children purposely are... Well, they nailed it. Yeah. Whatever they did, these kids are good. And so they hit her in the head and she loses her grip on the stroller, which starts rolling down the hill very quickly ahead of her, where it's eventually hit by a taxi. And we cut from the toppled stroller to a baptism across town. But when the priest places the baby in the baptismal font, we see the priest like gritting his teeth and we hear yeah. choking sounds coming from the baby. But it's out of frame, so then when he turns to hand the child back to the mother, she just looks horrified, and we cut away before anyone says anything. As much as this whole sequence is very disturbing, it is odd how ambiguous these moments are. Yeah. Because I can imagine someone watching this and not understanding that this man just strangled the baby. Mm -hmm. I was a little confused when I saw that. Because it's just because of how barely it's implied here. Well, I didn't know if he was strangling it or was choking it with water. 
Because oh, yeah, I think I they, they, they anoint the head. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know if he was just taking water and just dropping it into his mouth. Yeah. It, it's it's all very ambiguous, but I'm glad that it is. Yeah, I don't I didn't want to see this actor strangle an extra baby. <laughs> Next we see a pair of Boy Scouts. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just thinking about the credits for the production babies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Woof. Next, we see a pair of Boy Scouts knocking at the door of a new mother, and they are invited inside. Again, it's barely clear what's happening, but these two kids are probably going to kill the baby, if not the whole family. <laughs> Lastly, we see a doctor in a maternity ward turning off the oxygen supply to a whole room of infants. I'm assuming there's more than one. Maybe it's just one baby. I don't know. But she turns a dial on a machine, and you see the O2 level go down to zero. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's all really well done in the terms of like oh yeah this is these are all things that are are dying as yep. a result and I, i'm i'm sorry if i'm laughing i'm laughing at the absurdity right. of of horror yeah like, of the baby holocaust in the middle yeah of this movie. It, i yeah. i get i get like this a weird nervous laughter because i don't know how to react to something like this whenever people kill babies around me i usually just laugh <laughs> see i can't <laughs> help it. It, it it's 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 weird yeah it is weird it's not normal Dean and his wife, Barbara, see a story on the news about the incredible 15 to 20% increase in the infant mortality rate locally. In Greater London, 17 babies have died in the last seven days, with a further 14 deaths reported from Glasgow, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, and Liverpool. Barbara is obviously terrified by the figure, especially since all of the victims have been boys and she has one of a similar age. It seems crazy to me that the news media, or at the very least the police in charge of investigating this wave of deaths, haven't noticed that all of these children were born in the same six-hour period. Like, yeah. that's an important detail to mention. Well, um, I think that it is also important to note, though, that this guy who is on the show is is giving, like, a rebuttal. Yeah, he's about, very defensive about the numbers. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, so Damien's got... I think I think the implication is that this is one of Damien's people. Right. And but, I, uh, I disagree. Because I think he is accurate in well, what he is saying. Well, that's because you're a statistician and you're like, <laughs> well, no, it can't increase that quickly because you're not counting the whole year. You're just counting the last few weeks. Right. I'm just saying that but he also he's blames, not wrong. <laughs> well, he's a little bit wrong because he's blaming it on like, oh, well, you know, when an influenza happens, you know, the death rate goes up. And it's like, okay, but that's not what's happening here. These children are dying from electricity and being drowned it's, at churches. But it, semantically. Eaten by Boy is, Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> she is inaccurate by saying that the more infant mortality rate has gone up by X percent. Which is an annual statistic. Right. It cannot have gone up by that much just because 20 extra babies died this week. Right. Unless we're already at that number for the whole year. That night, as Kate arrives home after reporting on the deaths on television, she is surprised by a man at her front door and he wants to talk to her about the deaths. Somehow he talks his way into her apartment... Not unlike what Joe Spinell managed to do in Maniac earlier this year. She even makes a point to inform him that she has a son sleeping in the house, and to please not speak so loud as to wake him up. Why, in the middle of a rash of child deaths, would you invite a stranger into your home and tell them where your son is? (laughs) This is clearly the last dagger man, DiCarlo, and he tries to explain the infant mortality situation in biblical terms. I'm sorry, Father. Look, I uh, I, I do respect your faith, but I, I don't share it. He presents her with the birth certificates of the dead children and points out that they've all been born in the same six-hour window. Honestly, if he showed me this, I would be like, I found the killer. This guy's doing it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The man indicates that the only reason so many children would die born in the same window is because one of them is being targeted, 
and he suggests that that one baby under attack is the second coming of Christ, and the person responsible for the killings is the living Antichrist and son of Satan. He goes for broke and names the Antichrist as Ambassador Damien Thorne. Of course, Kate laughs it off because she's a close personal friend, and he's been nothing but kind to her and her son. It seems like their conversation has awoken Peter, and he listens to every word the man says from upstairs. Before he leaves, the man tells Kate to reach out to him whenever she needs him. He also tells her that she can identify the Antichrist by the mark of the beast just under the hair on his head, a sequence of sixes. You will find it in the book of Revelation, as I told you. You will also find it on Thorne himself, under his hair. Mark of the devil. Six, six, six. Or nines. Or nines. <laughs> Depending on which angle you're at. Nine, nine, ninety-nine. Do you remember that? September 9th, 1999, the MTV Movie Awards. Oh. The commercials would go nine, nine, ninety-nine. No, nobody. Everybody remembers, remembers that. that. No. That campaign ran for probably three weeks. Everybody remembers it. After he's gone, she sorts through the baby birth certificates and has to admit that the man is onto something, even if he's wrong about the devil stuff. Back in Damien's office, Dean is informing him about an international incident that requires his attention, but he's too weak to respond to it himself. Damien asks how many boys are left, including Dean's son, and Dean says, whoa, whoa, hold on. There's, there's three or four left, but you remember my son was not born in the window that you're looking at. Now you gotta believe me. I'll believe you when the Nazarene is dead. Peter... Kate's son calls the office and tells Damien about the man who visited his mother. Damien tells Peter to keep an eye on the man. We get another montage. This time it's of Peter following the last dagger man unaccompanied as he moves around the city. Well, this, this is a bit misleading because I don't think that Damien is telling Peter to follow the dagger man. Oh, is he not? No. Really? I, I think he's telling him to follow Harvey Dean. No. I no. think I think he's telling him to follow the dagger man. Okay. Because I, I, miss, I think I missed something then. Honestly, I think at this point Peter knows who Damien is. Yeah, I mean he's been initiated. Yeah, I think I th- he's one of his disciples now. Yeah, I think um, the blooding was the was the transferring of that information. Right, uh, and I think he does tell him to to follow. De Carlo. Yeah, yeah. De Carlo for sure. Okay. Because then he reports back about where De Carlo went, which was Dean's house. Yeah, and he wouldn't. Oh, that that's I think that's where I've got confused. Here. Yeah. Peter sees the man find the Dean home and entered to speak with Barbara, another mother willing to invite a man into their home during this child death fest. When Dean comes home, he finds Barbara in his office on the floor with paperwork outlining all of the recent child murders. She understands that her husband is complicit in whatever's going on, and she's terrified of him. We cut across town to Damien and Kate on a walk together along a river. Damien offers to show her where Old Nick hangs out, and they lean out over the water for a moment. Apparently Old Nick is a pike, which I know is a type of fish thanks to video games. (laughs) He tells her that the fish must be 40 now because he's come to see this fish ever since he was a young boy. Here? Was he here when he was a boy? You've seen the other two. I haven't. Well, he's son of an ambassador, right? He's the son of the the former UK ambassador, yes. So he he must have spent time in the UK, right? But he, he says the fish must be 40 now, but he's... 31 so i don't know like that fish was definitely nine when i met him <laughs> like that seems weird you count the rings <laughs> but he didn't even chop this fish in half she asks if 
Damien knows that Old Nick is a nickname for the devil, and he says, of course I do. <laughs> Why would I not know that? He leans forward to point out the fish, and when she looks for it, some rotted wood in the railing snaps, and she falls into the river. He takes his time rescuing her. He just sort of, like, meanders down to the river to pull her out of the water. And we cut to them at his home. He's helping her to warm up. I feel like a moth. It's flown too close to the flame. Who is the moth? And who's the flame? I said I feel like the moth. So <laughs> so in that metaphor, I am the moth. Because I said I feel like a moth. Yeah, but I don't, I, I don't even get this exchange. I don't either. Like, well, I don't know why she says that. And I don't know why he... Maybe she just meant it literally like, whew, this thing works. I feel like a moth who flew too close oh, to the flame. Oh, just because there's literally there's, a fire in front of her? There's a heater on. Okay, so it's not an analogy for their no, situation I don't. at all. She's just being quite literal. But Sam Neill turns it into an invitation. But, but, but what does he mean by that? He means sex. <laughs> <laughs> Rough sex. With a moth. <laughs> we cut immediately to them having sex, and suddenly... He flips her over, and the music takes a demonic turn as he violently sodomizes her on the bed. Later, she awakens in the red light of dusk with bruises all over her body. She dresses and sneaks through the house past a sleeping Rottweiler. She searches all over for Damien and eventually finds him naked on the floor of his big dark crucifix room. She brushes his hair aside for maybe the worst insert of this whole franchise, and she sees what is supposed to look like a 666 on his scalp under the hair, but it looks like black yarn poking through a burlap sack. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. It's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> she backs away from him horrified, and in Damien's office later, Damien asks Dean why DiCarlo was at his house. Peter pops up from behind a chair in the office to confirm that the priest was at the Dean home yesterday. Damien thinks this is confirmation that Dean's son was born in the crucial window, and Dean's son is the last one, the only possible Nazarene. Dean backs out of the office, calling Damien crazy, and turns to run home. It's a bit late to be having cold feet on this, Harvey. Yeah, it's it's crazy because it's like, yeah, three days ago I told you to kill 100 babies. And you're like, and, good, no problem. <laughs> and now when I was like, kill just your baby, he's like, you are a crazy man. Also, didn't you see this one coming? Yeah. Like, when... Killing all the hundreds of other babies didn't work. Right. I guess he was just playing the odds. He's like, what are the chances I brought home the lottery baby? Like, there's no way. Right? <laughs> I'm not Jesus Christ. But I'm he, not that's God, the other problem, so, too, right? is that now that he knows his son is Jesus, he's like, well, shit. Like, my kid's the Jesus kid? Does that make me God? Like, I have to be on that <laughs> side now. <laughs> yeah. Now he's God. Back at the Dean home, Barbara is ironing clothes near their baby in the kitchen. Suddenly, a Rottweiler pops up in the kitchen window to startle them both. When it leaves, Barbara moves to calm the baby, but instead she finds an ashen papier-mâché baby in its place, following her with its empty eyes. After a moment, it turns back into a baby, but Barbara seems entranced and approaches the child with the hot iron. Dean comes home and starts calling out to her, but she doesn't respond. So, yeah, it's like, okay, ho hold on a minute. The last time you and your wife were together in a she scene. She thought you were a baby murderer. It's like, now you're coming going, honey, I'm home. It's like, yeah. what? I also feel like they wouldn't be here if they were trying to avoid you yeah. and they thought yeah. you were trying to kill babies. He moves into the kitchen. He finds their presumably wrinkle-free child in the kitchen. Ha <laughs> 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 And starts to scream when Barbara sneaks up behind him and bashes his face in with the still steaming iron. Ugh. But when we see him hit the ground, his face is like burnt as if she held it there for yeah, a while. Yeah. Ugh. 
Too much starch. But it's also just like it's on his eye. Like this isn't like a home alone like iron mark on yeah. his face. Like it's like a charred eyeball. With his he also has his like glasses. shattered glasses. He's got glasses yeah. Glasses on. It kind of looks like Mo Green after he gets shot through the eye in The Godfather. We cut to Kate on the set of her show when she's visited by Father DiCarlo. He informs her that her son Peter has been corrupted by Thorn and that he's helping him hunt down the Nazarene. He tells her that she can still save Peter by helping him to destroy Damien. He also tells her that he has the Jesus baby or that the Jesus baby is safe. Right. I was like, why are you giving up that information? Yeah. You don't know this woman's allegiance yet. Yeah. She could be one of the tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. that are on Damien's side. And does he? Yes. Okay. Because like, we don't see any of that. Correct. And at the same time, I was like, I think I missed that line altogether. I'm like, we killed him. Right? Because it had to be Harvey's kid, because that was the last one. But we didn't? We'll see. She doesn't necessarily believe what the father has to say. I'm going home to my son. Then I beg you to let me come with you. There will be no time to lose when you find he's not there. Please. And she agrees to this, because what are you going to lose? First, she confirms that Peter is not at her home, and then she heads directly to Damien's home and his crucifix room, where she finds Damien and Peter together. She tells Damien that she will lead him to the Nazarene in exchange for her son back. No, Damien, it's a trick. Not if she wants her son back, it isn't. Damien and Peter leave out the door, and Kate prays to the crucifix for strength. At the ruins of an abandoned church, Kate leads Damien down some stairs when DiCarlo pops out to stab Damien, But Damien uses her son Peter as a shield and then drops the dead child to the floor when he's got the dagger in his chest before strangling the priest to death. So that's all of the dagger monks are dead. Yeah. He stomps around the empty church shouting for the Nazarene to face him and Kate cries as she cradles the body of her son. So is he expecting a little baby to crawl up here and be like, let's go, dude. (laughs) Yeah, he just starts picking a fight with a one-month-old. Ready, fight. (laughs) (laughs) Damien continues to wander the church grounds, though in his position, I would assume that this location was just a trap and there is no Nazarene to be had here. Damien turns to climb some stairs when he is suddenly stabbed in the back by Kate using the dagger that he left in Peter's corpse, though she does stupidly telegraph her presence by calling him a bastard first. (laughs) You bastard! Damien stumbles to a platform at the head of the church and collapses, under a growing holy spotlight we get a title card behold the lion of judah the messiah who came first as a child but returns not as a child but now as a king of kings to rule in power and glory forever this last bit is a great deal more confusing someone in the foreground is holding peter's body while kate kneels before the deceased damien she turns to join whoever is carrying her son and they walk together in a super wide shot out of the church ruins. Another title reads, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21.4 Who is this carrying I the baby? have no idea. Is it Jesus? Or, or a disciple thereof? I think it's Jesus. I think it's literally Jesus carrying her son. And I would have thought the implication would be that Jesus is going to bring her son back. Like, you would see him carrying the kid, and then in the wide shot, they would set the kid down, and the kid would walk with them. 
Yeah, but there was only one set of footprints because Jesus carried <laughs> No, there's three sets of footprints. <laughs> no, there's a, there's actually only two because Jesus is carrying the boy. But you're, pro- you're probably wondering about these other footprints that are beside me. Well, this isn't my first take. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know what, what is supposed to be implied by that last shot unless it's literally Jesus helped me clean up the litter at this churchyard because they leave Damien's body there. Why are they taking this kid's body if he's dead well well i, mean, I can see i can see her wanting got, to take her he's got some options right that's what they, they should have shown him bring the kid back i think by stabbing damien you immediately ascend to like saint or prophethood in, yeah. the, in the church like oh you killed the antichrist yeah you get like a whole section to the bible dedicated to you yeah including like a wish <laughs> like you want your son back you got it I do feel like it calls for, you know, a f- one free rental or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I I guess this comes down to my not really knowing enough about the uh the end of days. Like I are we going back to the normal world or yeah, is, is this the is, end of days? <laughs> is everybody I, going to be raptured now? Like I mean I, I I don't really know what the second coming entails. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. So, either. I mean, because maybe her son's gonna be fine now because the second coming's like, well, everyone's dead because we're all going to heaven. Yeah, yeah. This Welcome. world is over. <laughs> well, according to the novelization, the Nazarene, uh, never revealed in the film, is actually the child of gypsies, which explains the lack of a birth certificate. Oh, so it's not a child so born on the record. Find it. Right. Okay. But I didn't know they were using a computer system to find all these babies anyway. I thought it was birth records. I mean, yeah. it doesn't. It's not a computer system, but it's, right. But I thought it was just Damien saying, "Here's their names. Here's where they are." Oh, oh no. like he has some sort of divine. Well, yeah. I guess not divine power, but whatever the opposite. What's of the opposite is. of divine? He has some sort of demonic power yeah. to to know the babies. He, he he didn't like spend all that time in the records room like Oswald Cobblepot and Batman Returns. Yeah, like searching for all the baby names. When I was watching the movie the first time, I was like, "Is that why he wanted to be on the Youth Council?" But that was for the United Nations. so it's not like something where he would have access to a database of children Mm -mm. Uh, the sequel to this film omen 4 armageddon was planned for 1984 from the second film screenwriter and based on a novel entitled omen 4 armageddon 2000 by gordon mcgill graham baker wanted to return to direct but scheduling prevented it and he was replaced with horace d burton who unfortunately passed away in 83 leading fox to scrap the project entirely Probably for the best. Yeah, I think that's probably the best. Uh, The author of the Omen 4 novel also wrote a fifth installment called Omen 5, The Abomination. So there's material here for two more stories. Were there any more Omen movies at all? The Omen franchise was resurrected as a TV movie in 1991 and tells the story of Damien's daughter pawned off on an unsuspecting childless family. So it's kind of a remake of the first. It's a soft reboot. Mm. Um, of the first film because I was actually thinking that if there was another film I was assuming that Kate would have the spawn of mm-hmm. right. Damien you so, would think yeah yeah. Uh, in 2006 the franchise was rebooted starring Liev Schreiber and Julia Stiles as Damien's adoptive parents but it didn't get any sequels and it was also terrible the director here was Graham Baker this was his first feature uh, he later directed the Alien Nation feature and the 99 Beowulf starring Christopher Lambert. Uh, the characters were from David Seltzer, who, as we said before, was the screenwriter of the original Omen. Before that, he was the uncredited writer of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. After the first Omen, he wrote Punchline, Bird on a Wire, and My Giant. Very eclectic mix of films. 
He's also the only credited screenwriter on the 2006 Omen reboot. Uh, and I can't tell if that's because he wrote a script for them to work from or if they literally just used the script from the first movie. <laughs> because when I watched it, it felt line for line the oh, whole yeah. way through. Yeah. Um, but that one was directed by your friend, John Moore. Oh. Okay. Apparently, the Omen story was also adapted into a series called Damien in 2016 on A&E, but it only ran for 10 episodes. Seltzer also has a creator credit on something called Rise of the Omen in 2017, but I couldn't tell what it is. It says it's a UK title, and it looks like a feature. The synopsis sounds like a reboot. The title sounds like a prequel, but creator usually implies that it's a series. I got a little suspicious when I noticed that the director also adapted the story and plays Damien, and it turns <laughs> out the whole thing is on YouTube, and it's just a fan film shot on a handheld camcorder. The writer here was Andrew Birkin. He wrote The Name of the Rose and The yeah. Messenger, which yeah. was Luke Besson's Joan of Arc movie. But both of those movies are movies I really, really like. Yeah. And so I was like, I was like, oh, this movie wasn't... It's because it didn't take place in medieval times. Then yeah, that's fine. true. The music here was from Jerry Goldsmith. He did the music for our Patreon review of Ballad of Cable Hogue last year. He also composed the first adaptation of a James Bond story, Climax's Casino Royale episode. He scored Patton, Planet of the Apes, Chinatown, The First Omen, obviously, Capricorn One, Star Trek TMP, too many titles to go over, really, and uh, Cabo Blanco earlier this season. I did like the score for this movie. Yeah, it was great. Of his 18 Oscar nominations, his only win was for the score to the original Omen. Cinematographer Phil Mehew, or Mehew, uh, he later DPs Highlander 2, Goldeneye, The Saint, the Mask of Zorro, which I think is from the same director as Goldeneye, right? Uh, Martin Campbell? Martin Campbell? Uh, he also did Casino Royale, which again was Martin Campbell, I believe. Uh, the Smurfs 1 and 2, and SpongeBob Sponge Out of Water. <laughs> he was the DP on that one. Uh, our other cinematographer, Robert Painter, uh, will see his work on Superman 2 and An American Werewolf in London later this year. He also lends his Trading Places, Superman 3, Muppets Take Manhattan, Spies Like Us, and Little Shop of Horrors. Nice. Hmm. Our editor was Alan Strachan, or Strachan. He was the editor for North Sea Hijack, With Nail and I, and Waking Ned Divine. He was also in the editorial department for a few Bond movies, specifically the 67 Casino Royale, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. Sam Neill was Damien Thorne. We had him last year in My Brilliant Career. He's in Jurassic Parks. He's in... Event Horizon, Possession, In the Mouth of Madness, Thor Ragnarok, Hunt for the Wilder People, and he was also Merlin in the 98 miniseries. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Rosano Brazzi played DiCarlo. He was Emile de Beck in South Pacific, and he was Beckerman in the original Italian job. Don Gordon played Harvey Dean, which is funny because he, like, he reminds me a lot of Harry Dean Stanton, and his character's name is Harvey Dean. I wonder if that's... A coincidence he's in a few steve mcqueen movies bullet towering inferno and papillon he's also ryan in exorcist 3 and frank bonner in macgyver episode family matter where he kidnaps pete's family and holds them hostage lisa harrow was kate reynolds i didn't recognize her other credits but as i said before she developed a relationship with sam neill on set and the two were married for a decade they have a son together tim neill who worked as an electrician on guardians of the galaxy barnaby holm played peter reynolds uh, his only other role was Christopher Porter in Juggernaut, and he's actually the son of Bilbo actor Ian Holm. Yeah, as, as, as soon as I saw that last name, I was like, I don't know many Holmes. Yeah. Holm. 
Mason Adams played the president. He was an obstetrician in God Told Me To. He's also the father of the Lane Smith character in Son-in-Law. So he's the grandfather-in-law in Son-in-Law. Lane Smith is the guy. Got it. I got you. <laughs> Robert Arden played American Ambassador. Later this season, he'll play the CIA chief in Condor Man and the jury foreman in Ragtime. Mark Boyle played Brother Benito. He's back later this season as Nicholas P. Spada in Outland. And he's also credited as Chevalier in Top Secret. Milos Kirik played Brother Martin. He's Kovacs in Never Say Never Again. He's also General Petrovich in MacGyver episode Every Time She Smiles. Tommy Dugan played Brother Mattias. He's also a priest in The First Omen, a different priest. And we'll see him later this year as a diner owner in Superman 2. So Donner bringing him back. Yeah. Richard Oldfield played Brother Simeon. He was Rubble Force Hobby in Empire. He's Doug Van Allen in The Razor's Edge, and later the mission leader in Life Force, which I think by mission leader that means of the space mission that discovers Yeah, I, yeah I, would, I would say. Uh, Tony Vogel was Brother Antonio. He plays the tall captain in Raiders later this season. Norman Bird was Dr. Fillmore. He's the voice of Bilbo in Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. So there's two Bilbo connections. Uh, Al Matthews plays Workman. He was Ferguson in Rough Cut last year, and he's back as a maitre d' in Ragtime later this year. He's also Sergeant Apone in Aliens. Nice. Harvey Bernhard played the U.S. Embassy employee uncredited. He was the producer on this film and also the producer of Lady Hawk and The Lost Boys. And Jeremy Bullock played a news reporter. He was Smithers in For Your Eyes Only in Octopussy, and he also played Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. And he just passed away in December of last year. Hazel Court played Champagne Woman at the hunt. Apparently she was in town while they were filming, so producer Bernard just insisted that she appear as a cameo. This was her final feature film appearance. She also appeared in a couple Hammer films, The Curse of Frankenstein and The Man Who Could Cheat Death, and later appeared in several of Roger Corman's Poe adaptations for American International Pictures, The Premature Burial, The Raven, and The Mask of the Red Death. Corman saw the success that Hammer had with the Universal Monster adaptations and went on to adapt seven of Edgar Allan Poe's works into films as they'd already entered into the public domain. Ruby Wax played the U.S. Ambassador's Secretary. I think that's the woman who opens the door <laughs> that causes him to get shot. This was her first credit, and she's also Betty Hapshat in Shock Treatment later this season and Bunty in Chariots of Fire. So we'll get two more roles from her this year. Um, I asked you guys to bring a list of three third installments that you considered to be favorites jesse's giving me the eyes to say i definitely remembered to do that <laughs> you need to remind me of these things all right Not i have a lot of show. stuff to remember <laughs> i i can tell you what your number one was if you want to only come up with two okay do you want me to tell you or do you remember i remember okay my number one is uh um What's my number one? <laughs> the Last Crusade. <laughs> the Last Crusade. Thank you. <laughs> Richard, what was your number one? Um, well, I would have had a different number one uh, later. W- once I found out what your number one was, I go, oh, if we're counting that, then I would have picked a different movie. Well, what would you have gone with? Um, I would have gone with Baron Munchausen. Okay. As part of the trilogy the, of the, the, the Dreams trilogy. Yeah. For Terry Gilliam. Um, but I'm still I'm still ha- satisfied with my pick of Goldfinger. Okay. Uh, and mine was World's End, which I consider to be the end of the Three Cornettos trilogy. Right. Um, which also, like, I mean, it's a it's a trilogy in as much as, you know, the first three 
Muppet movies are a trilogy because you know those those characters change names and they're obviously playing different parts over the course of that franchise. Yeah, they, they change occupations. Like they like they they know each other from different different ways. Yeah, like you know? like suddenly uh, Fozzie and Kermit are siblings in the yeah. second movie uh, when they didn't know each other in the first one, and then they all change names for the Christmas one. Um, but yeah, so I picked World's End as my number one because, and that might even be my favorite of that trilogy, even. It's really good. It, I, I feel like it's the one that's not talked about as much. Yeah, yeah. it's great. I, I know that people really love Shaun of the Dead, and, and I think for most people, Hot Fuzz is a very close second after Shaun of the Dead. But for me, World's End is still the number one because I get more out of it every time I see it. Yeah. And I feel like it has the most heart of the three stories. It's a really sad story yeah. for Simon Pegg's character. There's a lot of drama in that. And it obviously has a connection to this film because of the O-Man <laughs> <laughs> who has the birth uh, the birthmark on his head. Um, but uh, what did you come up with a second one, Jess? Um, I did. Uh, and and granted, if I, if I had spent more time figuring this out, I might come up with something different. But... I'm going to go with Thor Ragnarok. That's a solid answer. Because I don't even think that the other two Thor movies are that good, but Thor Ragnarok is amazing. And it also (laughs) has a connection to this film and that they both feature Sam Neill. Mm -hmm. There you go. Uh, uh, Ragnarok made my short list. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to go for my other pick is going to be Army of Darkness. That's a solid one. Uh, Because that was my freaking jam. Like all and that's definitely my, my favorite of that trilogy. Yeah, like all through like my high school, like in early like college life, like Army of Darkness was always on my mind. Yeah, I think most of the like Ash quotes that people recite come from that movie too. Yeah, uh, my number two was Christmas Vacation. Okay, um, because that yeah. might actually be my favorite vacation movie of of that whole set. I, I could agree to that too. I think it's it's the most interesting, even though it's kind of a bottle episode. Yeah, the whole thing's just in the house mostly, except yeah. for like they go to the mall once. Yeah, and, the, and, like the, that. and then there's the sledding, the infamous sledding scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that works for me as as my favorite of that trilogy. I guess it's not a trilogy if there's more after that. I guess there's just yeah. the. It's I the only third count one more after that. <laughs> I don't go beyond uh, Vegas Vacation. I, Vegas Vacation is the last one. Um, Jess, did you have your third one lined up yet? Um. You know, again, if if I spent more time on this, I might come up with an, another film, another third film that I like better. But uh, in terms of really solid movie that I really like and is third in a series, I'm gonna go with How to Train Your Dragon Three. That's a good one. Nice. Yeah, I like that one. Did you uh, have a third one? Yeah, I have a third one. Um, I again, I have like a short list of, of things. Like I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm gonna go with Logan. Okay. Being the third of the Wolverine series. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. My third one that I have is Back to the Future 3, which I think people crap on a lot, which is why I felt like bringing it up as this is probably the one I watched the most out of that trilogy growing up because it was just always the one that my dad felt like watching. And so we would put it on a lot. And I feel like it holds up really well. I think people, people kind of rip on it because it's not like the other two. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny because I feel like two is the one that I've seen the most. Yeah. Two is the one that I've seen probably twice in my life. And it always feels like the black sheep, like it's actually not that great. Like some of the, the design stuff is good, but I don't, I feel like I don't identify as much with that film. Yeah. It, it's as much as like the future is the thing that, that everyone remembers. It doesn't linger in the future. It mostly takes place back in 1955. Right. Yeah. 
um, some other things that were on my list. One, one was Ragnarok, as as um, but uh, I I moved it down for, for uh, I had Die Hard with a Vengeance was on there, yep. uh, and uh, a personal one for me because I really liked Star Trek Beyond. I know not a lot of people liked that, but I really liked it. Wait, Star Trek Beyond? Oh, okay, so starting the trilogy with the reboot, sort of. Correct. Yeah. Um, from our Discord, uh, Steven Sperling went with Son of Frankenstein or Return of the Jedi. Uh, Ray H. <laughs> is, that, is that the other title for Son of Frankenstein? Yeah. <laughs> people forget. It used to be called that. There are posters that say Son of Frankenstein on them. Uh, <laughs> it's not true. They say, they say, what is it? Return of the Sith or Revenge, 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 of, Revenge, of, the Jedi. Revenge of the Jedi? Mixing them up. Ray H. said Rocky Three, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome were his choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a third installment. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tanya recommended Exorcist Three. Oh, yeah. Which I still haven't seen. I'm embarrassed about. Uh, and Army of Darkness also. Uh, Mike Lamb went with both of your number ones, Goldfinger and The Last Crusade. And lastly, Carlo on the Discord uh, submitted Munchie Strikes Back as his favorite third installment. <laughs> which is... Which is the sequel to Munchie, which, which is, is the sequel to Munchies. Munchies. Yeah. Um, they did the plurals wrong. Yeah. Okay. So it's, like, so it's like the Alien franchise. Right. And no one picked Alien 3. No. Well, Resurrection's <laughs> terrible, isn't it? That was That's the Fincher one? Alien 3 is the is the Fincher one, yeah. Oh, 4 is Resurrection. Correct. That's the Jean-Pierre Genet. Correct. Yeah. What, what, was the, what was Alien 3 called? Just Alien 3? Yeah, so it was Alien, Aliens, and then Alien 3. AKA Aliens 2. Yeah. Yeah, but no, but Munchies started with Munchies. Yeah. Okay. And then went to Munchie as the sequel. Yeah. And then did Munchie Strikes Back. And then did uh, Return of the Jedi, which is <laughs> weird. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Sean P. Ani picked Halloween 3. Uh, Dr. Butcher MD went with Army of Darkness also. Uh, Halloween 3, that's the. the that's the one where it's like the commercials, like there's like the. I haven't seen okay. a Halloween movie. I've only, I've literally only seen the two Rob Zombie Halloween. Okay. Movies. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's well, so messed I know, up. I know. <laughs> well, because John Carpenter made Halloween, and he was gonna make more Halloween movies, but not with Michael Myers. The whole concept was to create a weird Halloween anthology series. Right. Yeah. And so when. They, so he made Halloween 2 to connect back with Michael Myers because everyone that's what everyone wanted. Yeah, but 2 is just straight up Halloween again, but in a hospital. Yeah. But then the third one is Season of the Witch. Yeah, which is like some some crazy weird one. Yeah. Uh, Ian Graham with the Cult Connections podcast went with Born Ultimatum, which I don't remember that one as well. Uh, it, it, it is good. Um, I liked I liked what they did with the concept of Julia Stiles' character. Um, because she's kind of like this through line for all four of the Matt Damon Bourne movies, which I think is kind of interesting. Is she brought in as a love interest to replace the Franca Patente character? Uh, she k- kind of. I mean, spoiler for people who don't know. Because um, uh, Franca Patente dies in the second one. Um, and uh, and Julia Stiles is slightly featured in the second one. Yeah. But in the third one, she's kind of like a... She becomes part of associated with what's going on in Prime's The Target. Yeah. And so... It's them hiding together, and she reminds him that they had a brief relationship. That before met- he was wiped? Yeah, before he was wiped. Okay, interesting. Um, Teague Packard had another vote for Last Crusade. Mr. McGrath went with Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Okay. Uh, Throwback Therapy said Rocky 3. 
Uh, Doug Brown went with Exorcist 3 again. Helen Barletto had another vote for Return of the Jedi. Matt Vetrano went outside the box with Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Nice. Which like takes the- place in a city. <laughs> I like the Children of the Corn movies. <laughs> I've never seen any of them, but I wouldn't think the, the corn children would be so much trouble in the city. Um, but I, I haven't even started that franchise yet. Uh, Spooter Dog went for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, okay. Which is, yeah. I was surprised that uh, that hadn't come up yet uh, from anybody else. The, there was a lot of Twitter responses this time, and that was the first Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on there. Which third installments have we covered so far on the podcast? Are these like true third installments? Or are you... Yes. Okay. Except for one. That's a joke. <laughs> What's our website again? <laughs> Vintagevideopodcast.com. <laughs> it's clever. She's trying to get me to work it into the show more. Plug it in. (laughs) Well, no. What did you almost say? I almost said Empire Strikes Back, but (laughs) it was like, I I was going to say Return of the Jedi, but then I was like, no, we we did Empire. Do we have an answer? I know what your joke one is. What's my joke answer? Your joke one is Saturn 3. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. And then there's two that are actual third installments. Though, as far as I know, they don't actually have anyone in the cast that was in the previous two installments. They have characters in common, mm-hmm. but no cast. Uh, and Happy Hooker was the second one, though, was it? It was the third. It was the third? Yeah. Okay. Because like, there's I know Happy there Hooker, Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, and Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Okay. So that's one of them. And then the other one is a different Herbie? film. No, Herbie was four, actually. Herbie was number four. Okay. Kirby Goes Bananas is four. Got it. Make a mental note of that. It's going to come back very, very shortly. What? Oh. No, and Cheech and Chong was a second movie. Correct. So that's not it. That will also come back very shortly. <laughs> Centered on a non-human character. It's not... It's not the Benji movie, is it? It is. Oh, okay. That was, that was Benji 3, Oh Heavenly Dog. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have remembered that. Uh, so those are our three thirds that we've done so far. What are our second installments that we've done so far? Smokey and the Bandit 2. Smokey and the Bandit 2. Empire. Empire. You've got... Two. Oh, God Book 2. Oh, God Book 2. Mm-hmm. And then there's one more. It's toward the top of the list if you're scrolling around. So it's one of the first movies we did? Yeah. Oh. The ninth configuration? That's correct. Oh. It's the middle of the Exorcist trilogy. Oh. Yeah, I wouldn't have remembered that either. What about beginnings of trilogies that we've covered so far? Oh, come on. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> um, is Alligator one? Uh, no, there's actually only two Alligator uh. movies. But this one is actually was a Patreon review that has two sequels. Cable Hogue. <laughs> Was the Hercules one? No, Hercules no. didn't have like Hercules in New York, Hercules in yeah, Los Angeles. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of Hercules movies, but uh, well, you don't. Arnold was only in the one. You wouldn't count because Little Miss Marker was a reboot. No, so you're not counting that, right? Nope. It has Dumbledore in it. A man called Horse. There you go. It had a couple of them. Yeah, it did have a okay. couple sequels, and then fourth films. Which ones have we covered that are fourth installments? There's two. That I could count. <laughs> there might be more that I missed. So we said Herbie. Right. 
Is there two more or is that? No, there's that... one more after that. Okay. But also in terms of second films, you forgot uh, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Oh, that's true. That was a Patreon was review, but you're night. correct. Yeah. We said, oh, we said that one. Cheech and Chong's next movie. Next movie, yep. Yeah. That was for the second one, Yeah, too. yeah. But we're talking about fourth installments yep. fourth now? fourth installments. This one's a little tricky because it's not live action. It's tricky because it's not live action. We Have we done any other animated films aside from American Pop? Yep. <laughs> I don't blame you for instantly forgetting it, though. We've done an animated film aside from American Pop. My yeah. brain is not remembering that. Stephen Sperling is so angry right now. Was it this year? Nope. It's right at the end of last year. Probably in the last couple of months. Based on a comic strip. Oh, is that shitty Peanuts movie? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bon Voyage Charlie Brown is the fourth installment <laughs> of the Charlie Brown films. <laughs> That's everything I have for my trivia portion of the day. Please leave in all the dead air yeah. <laughs> of this me ep- like staring blankly trying to figure it out. Just so the listeners know, this episode is currently four and a half hours long. <laughs> but it's going to be cut down to whatever you're looking at. Um, yeah. I think this movie is pretty awesome, actually. Uh, I, I do, too. I, liked I really it a lot. liked it. <laughs> um, it had me all the way until the end. Right. The end doesn't make any sense. Like where I was like, okay. You, you spent all this time building up two other movies where the Antichrist is winning and surviving just to say, nope, the prophecy was really died. Yeah. It's and like, that, what? No, I want, I don't want him to win, but he, he's earned the yeah. win. They, they, well, I was rooting for him the whole time. I have to admit. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like everybody was for this whole franchise. You have to root for the devil. If you're, if you're going yeah. to see a movie about the devil kicking ass. Like, I you just, want the devil to win. I mean, I, it's Sam Neill, too. Like, I'm going to follow him to hell. If that's where we're going, I'm yeah. there. Like, yeah. Uh, and you also kill the franchise when you come back and you're like, all right, Jesus saves the day. That's the end of it. Right. We Yeah, we needed more at the end. They flubbed the end a little bit where I just, you needed you needed a little bit more clarity. We needed a cliffhanger. We needed a, you know, like, it's, it's not over kind of thing. So I agree with that. But I still, all around really enjoyed this movie i think like all of the crazy deaths of the monks were great i think the insanity of killing all the babies is great i got like scott pilgrim vibes when they're like oh the seven seven evil monks yeah like, <laughs> they're coming in with daggers and they're coming for you it's like why didn't you guys pace this a little bit better like you could all come at him on the same day yeah they could have all just got him on the street when the one guy chickened out of yeah. like it was like i can't kill him in front of witnesses yeah like i don't want to go to jail well it's like put in like the guy up on the rafters what was he going to do yeah i don't understand your plan <laughs> yeah. at the last second he was like oh there was other people around i didn't notice them until i got way up above the set but, but yeah. it, it's a thumbs up for me yeah there's there's enough fun here for it the second one is pretty rough it has one awesome kill but aside from that one kill there's no reason to watch the second movie and it's probably in the trailer because they're so bad at that back then I, I think Sam Neill was the perfect choice. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, James Mason, for making that possible. Yeah. And and uh, Gregory Peck is great in the first one, but the second one, the the uncle character, the the new like the stepfather sort of, uh, is uh, William Holden, who's oh. but he's is he's at the age where he's just kind of 
you know perfunctory he's just mm. in the scene there's no power to anything that he does and he's just kind of wandering around the film there's there's nothing to the performance what's just out of curiosity what stances his uncle take on all of this is he for Jamie? is he helping him is he against him i don't well it's it's, film. it's essentially the same story uh as gregory peck you know they slowly come to terms with the fact that that is who this child is and that they have to do something about it once they've decided for themselves okay. that it's real so got it this is the first one where they're like at the beginning he has people on his side that are like all right you're the devil Let's all work together to figure Let's this out. Get it done. But I, I do agree that it's really fun. I was kind of hoping that he would, they would delve more into the political aspirations here, or if they were going to do an Omen Four to be like, now he's the fucking president. Yeah. <laughs> on top yeah. of all this. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, it, when I said so and so as the president, I was like, the Antichrist is going to have a meeting with the president, and he's yeah. like, the president's going to call me any minute. It's like, oh my god, it's <laughs> so crazy that the president is calling the Antichrist. Yeah. And when he when he addresses that crowd of people, and you see that they're men and women and children, and and then a couple of priests mm-hmm. that are yeah, just yeah, he's like, never had this wow. many humans on his side in yeah. any of the previous films, and they still mess it up. But it's it's a lot of fun. It's definitely a thumbs up for me. So we got three thumbs up for this one. What are we thinking letterboxed? Uh, so I have this at number two. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you did like <laughs> I this. I did like this movie. Uh, it's under scanners and above fear, no evil. Another a similar movie to this, I think. Um, and that's, yeah. So number two out of 32 for the year. All right. Richard. Um, I, I have it lower. I have it at number seven. Okay. Um, it would have been much higher had he won. And, right. And uh, it is below... It's too below Fear No Evil because in Fear No Evil he does win. He does win, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Fair was, like, like spoiler. Alert. Sorry, I know we. I think we even said that that you should people should watch that movie. But um, I was like, that's why I was so pleased with that. movie. Yeah, that was really wonderful. I feel like they might have, you know, though, if it was Fear No Evil the third movie and he won again, that maybe you'd be like, is this necessary to, for the devil to keep winning? But yeah. the answer is yes, because that's <laughs> why people buy tickets to these movies. Yeah. So they want to see they want to see Evil Triumph. Yeah. Um. So I have in mind at at seven. Which is below Sphinx, uh, but above Eyewitness. Okay. Um, I have it in 11th, but I did like it, guys. Uh, <laughs> it's just under Cabo Blanco and just above Maniac. I think that's everything for Omen 3, The Final Conflict. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Hit the, hit the bell. There's a button Is or there something. A bell? I don't know. I think people say bell. It's like a a switch. Hit the flip the YouTube (laughs) switch, please. You you press Control F four. No, don't do that. (laughs) Shuts down everything. Isn't it Alt F four? Is it Alt F four? I don't. It depends on your machine, I guess. Don't do that one though. That's to close the window, guys. You're gonna lose the show. Oh, what's that noise, guys? We got one. We got a new patron. Oh, hello, hello. Welcome, patron. Welcome, June. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, June is a friend of ours that I chat with often on Twitter and on Discord, and she has her own podcast called Murders, Mysteries, and Meows that everybody should look out for. Check it out. But June has access to all of our 70s reviews and all the minisodes we've dropped so far this year, so uh, that's what you have to look forward to if you join June as a patron of the show, and then we'll talk about you like this. 
is her podcast about murders, mysteries, and cats. It is. It is a show, a true crime show, and then there's usually a little cat story at the end to lighten the mood <laughs> on the way out. Okay. It's, it's, it's a very pleasant show. I definitely recommend it. You sh- we should check it Meowt? No. Nope. I mean, yes. Shit. <laughs> yeah, check it out, but no, don't Not check it Meowt. <laughs> check Meowt. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Eyes of a Stranger which IMDb describes like so. A reporter suspects a creepy neighbor who lives in the high-rise building across from hers is a serial killer terrorizing the Miami area. We leave you now with a trailer for Eyes of a Stranger. He is out there. Somewhere. Waiting. Stalking human prey. Is there anyone there? Debbie. Why don't you leave me alone, will you? I'm not interested. I don't want to hear it. Creep.